Hello, everyone. Welcome to Volts for March 29th, 2023. We're about to give billions of dollars to clean hydrogen. How should we define it? I'm your host, David Roberts. Volts subscribers understand that a decarbonized energy system will require lots and lots of hydrogen to store energy and to serve as a fuel in applications that are otherwise difficult to decarbonize. They also understand that while 95% of the world's hydrogen is currently produced using fossil fuels, there is a carbon-free way to produce hydrogen. It involves running electrical current through an electrolyzer, which splits hydrogen out of water. Volt's listeners heard all about electrolyzers a few episodes ago. But the resulting hydrogen is clean only if the electricity that is run through the electrolyzer is clean. That is the recipe for clean hydrogen. Clean electricity plus electrolyzers. Democrats also understand the need for clean hydrogen to scale up quickly, and they included tax credits for clean hydrogen production in the Inflation Reduction Act. And therein lies the rub. The IRS is currently in the process of determining exactly how those tax credits will be structured and to whom they will be available. At issue is a question that sounds simple but turns out to be devilishly complex. What exactly counts as clean hydrogen? More specifically, what exactly counts as clean electricity? The details matter enormously. Up to $100 billion worth of subsidies are on the line. Big companies from BP to Next Era are lining up to try to make the standards as lax as possible to maximize their short-term profits. But lax standards could perversely end up increasing greenhouse gas emissions as electrolyzers come online, gobble up the available clean energy, and push grid managers to start up fossil fuel plants. To get to the bottom of all of this, I'm excited today to talk with Rachel Fakhry, who runs the Hydrogen and Energy Innovation Portfolio at the Natural Resources Defense Council, about the technical details of this fight, the ability of the industry to meet higher standards, and the enormous stakes involved for the industry and the larger project of decarbonization in getting it right. So... With no further ado, Rachel Fakhry, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. You're brave to come on and <laughs> address this subject. It is big <laughs> and complex and hairy. There's a lot of lot of ins and outs, uh, a lot of strands in the duder's head. So let's start. So we get we need a bunch of hydrogen. We get we need it to be clean. We get basically what clean hydrogen is, sort of. So let's just start first by talking about what are these tax credits? What does the Inflation Reduction Act contain for clean hydrogen? So the IRA offers one of the largest subsidies for clean hydrogen in the world. It is a production tax credit, uh, which ranges between $0.6 to up to $3 per kilogram of each hydrogen produced. And the three kilogram, as I'm sure we'll talk, is kind of the big prize that all the projects are gunning for. Um, it is a technology neutral credit, so there's no colors, green, blue, pink, any of that. It all depends and is tied to uh, the life cycle greenhouse gas emissions of hydrogen. 
that top prize of $3 can only be eligible for clean hydrogen that achieves 0.45 kilogram of carbon per kilogram of hydrogen. Relative to today's status quo hydrogen that's gas-derived, uncontrolled, which is roughly around 10. So to get that top prize, you have to reduce emissions from status quo by 95%, which is a lot. Right. You have to be very, very clean to get that. Um, and it's a very long-lived credit. Uh, it lasts for 10 years for each project that gets it. And projects that commence construction as late as early 2033 uh, would still be eligible. So what this means is that by 2045, you could still have hydrogen projects that are getting taxpayers' dollars. Even if we think the technology is going to improve and drop in price and so on, <laughs> there are going to be projects still heavily subsidized. Yeah, it's a lot of money. Uh, one thing I would add, just in case listeners are not familiar, there's this, listeners have probably heard production tax credit and investment tax credit, PTC and ITC tossed around. Just for anybody who doesn't know, a production credit, you get a certain amount of money per quantity of the uh, subsidized thing produced. So in other words, this is you get the subsidy per ton or per kilogram of hydrogen produced versus the investment tax credit, which subsidizes capital costs of building the thing in the first place. And these, you know, have somewhat different dynamics, which I think we can return to later. But this is specifically, it's the production of hydrogen per kilogram that gets the subsidy. And you note the subsidy for the lowest, for the cleanest hydrogen is $3 a kilogram, which is huge. What's the next tier? Like, what do you get if you don't quite reach that threshold? It's a big cliff. You drop from three to one dollars a kilogram. And this is, yeah, and this is, I think, an, an excellent indicator of the type of hydrogen Congress really wanted to incense. They really wanted to incense the cleanest of the cleanest. Yeah. So this is actually an important background fact about these subsidies is they're nonlinear. They don't scale up linearly with the cleanness. There's, as you say, a big cliff, like the jump from not meeting that top threshold to meeting it gets you from $1 per kilogram to $3 per kilogram, which is a huge, huge increment. So all of which is to say how you define, <laughs> right? How, how exactly you structure who is in that top tier matters enormously. There's an enormous amount of money on the line. Absolutely. It all, we'll get to that, but it all hinges on how treasury guidelines will look like for determining the life cycle greenhouse gas emissions, which in turn will determine whether you get the top prize or something much more reduced. But since you mentioned that it's a lot of money indeed, this is an uncapped credit. It depends on, on how much hydrogen you actually produce, but we think this could be more than $100 billion. Our colleagues at Energy Innovation have produced a really useful, useful number, essentially taking one of the larger hydrogen projects being announced in Texas between AES, Air Products, large electrolyzer powered by wind and solar on-site. They estimate that between the hydrogen tax credits and the renewable tax credits, it could be a $30 billion subsidy for just one project. Holy shit. <laughs> so just to, I, I just want to flesh that elbow just to make that clear from uh, for listeners. You have a big sort of solar and wind renewable energy installation attached to an electrolyzer in this Texas project. And you're getting the tax credits for wind and solar and you're getting the tax credits for producing the hydrogen. That just means like, 
as you say, thirteen billion dollars. That's a huge. It's a thirty, actually, three zero. <laughs> thirty billion dollars in subsidy, primary. Yeah. yeah. So the point is, as background for all the rest of this discussion, we are dumping a ton of money on clean hydrogen specifically, all of which is to say this fight over how to define it, over what counts and what doesn't, is not an arcane technical matter here. There are billions and billions and billions of dollars of subsidies on the line, depending how we answer these questions that we're going to get into. That's absolutely right, Dave. Yep. So NRDC and a coalition of, of partners has put forward what they call the three pillars of, of clean hydrogen. Is that Did that originate with you? Where did the three pillars framework come from? I'm happy to say we had nothing to do with the origination. <laughs> very happy to claim credit. Um, <laughs> the three pillars are decidedly not new. Um, they're already at the heart of, the, of a debate around the effectiveness of voluntary renewable corporate procurement. So these are not new dynamics we're bringing to the hydrogen debate. We're actually having the hydrogen debate ride the broader uh, issues within the market like any other energy resource. So these three pillars are, the, the idea is if you meet these three criteria, then you count as truly clean hydrogen. And every one of these criteria is controversial. <laughs> every one of these is being uh, fought out now between industry that wants lax standards mm -hmm. and, and your coalition that wants strict standards. So let's go through the three pillars. Great. The first one is additionality, which I think people probably have some vague familiarity with, but let's spell out what it means in this context. Before we do that, actually, just to step back on a couple of things. Yes, you're right. There's a lot of contention around at least two of the three pillars, but it's funny because everyone is kind of picking and choosing what they like and don't like. So you have folks who are fine with hourly matching, others who are okay with additionality. So everyone will get to it. But within the opposition, we're seeing just kind of like cherry picking within the bouquet of pillars. It <laughs> doesn't work. But let's start with why do we even need the pillars? And as you noted, the pillars are additionality, deliverability, and hourly matching. So why do we even need those pillars? As you've alluded to, the credit entirely hinges on how the life cycle of hydrogen or life cycle emissions of hydrogen are determined, which means that the Biden administration, Treasury, in collaboration with DOE, EPA, and the White House, will essentially determine how these credits will impact our energy system. But calculating life cycle greenhouse gas emissions can be quite tricky, and the complexity really varies from project configuration to another. So, for example, if you have you know, an AES air products-like project where you have a big electrolyzer, uh, not connected to the grid, uh, only powered by renewable energy on site, easy, that's a zero emissions rate. However, when you move to a different configuration of electrolyzers that are grid-connected, drawing grid power and buying credits or offsets to net out those emissions, it becomes really complicated. And this is the classic kind of complexity of offset systems. Yes. Anybody familiar with the arguments over offsets will be f somewhat familiar with these concepts. Exactly. So we need some parameters and rules around how these offsets are accounted for since there's so much money at stake and so much emissions at stake. And this is especially true for electrolysis. Now, electrolysis is an energy-hungry process which means that even if it draws small shares of fossil fuel electricity, that would have significant emissions. 
So, for example, an electrolyzer that is powered by the average grid today would have twice the emissions of status quo hydrogen and 40 times the threshold, the 0.45 threshold, <laughs> to be eligible for the $3 per kilogram. Yes, that's so wild that I just want to put an exclamation point uh, next to it so everybody understands our starting point here is if you just make your electrolyzed hydrogen with the average grid electricity, with the sort of average mix of sources that we have on the U.S. grid, not only will you be 40 times more carbon intensive than the threshold for the subsidy, you'll be twice as carbon intensive as making the hydrogen directly from fossil fuel. So the difference between drawing on, you know, as you say, this project in Texas has its own renewable energy installation next to it. So, right, it's very clear where that's getting energy. The difference between that getting clearly clean energy and getting average grid energy is not a small increment of greenhouse gases. The average grid electricity is vastly more carbon intensive than what we're aiming for here. So all of which is just to say you can't just build an electrolyzer and plug it into the grid and call it clean because you're not getting clean power, basically. That's absolutely right. So if you are, if we are subsidizing projects that have twice the emissions of today's status quo hydrogen, then that's going to increase your emissions on the system as a whole. And now this is inarguable. Uh, What we're seeing coming out of Princeton, an upcoming study by Energy Innovation, a recent study by Rhodium Group, all agree that absent the three pillars, which we'll discuss, emissions will increase in this decade, completely contrary to where we need to go and subsidized by what is a climate bill. Yes, it would be wild to spend $100 billion of public money to substantially raise carbon emissions. That would be a perverse outcome, let's just say. Absolutely, an awful story. Let's now dig into this. So the pillars, you can think of them as parameters around those offsets that will be used that are the only ones that will ensure that the offsets are effective but truly um, netting out all the emissions being driven by electrolysis. Happy to get to dig into it some more, but I should note from the outset that after a thorough legal analysis, I can announce with confidence that the three pillars are legally necessary and that Treasury has all the authority it needs to implement them rigorously. And I want to get into this a little bit later after we go through them. But I, my question is, can they not like, like, are they legally allowed not to use them? Cause you right. know, like the, like the industry is encouraging, but we'll get into that in a minute. First, you know, we've been talking around the three pillars. Let's go through them. The first one is additionality, which people, I think, you know, energy aware people understand is if you just plug your electrolyzer into the grid, you're getting grid power, which is dirty. If you plug your electrolyzer into the grid and specifically consume renewable energy from the grid the way that, you know, you can, where you can just buy renewable energy certificates, RECs, and say, you know, I consumed this much and I bought this many RECs to offset it. If you're doing that, you're not necessarily using clean energy because you're drawing from existing renewable energy, which means whoever else was using that existing renewable energy now gets bumped to something else, et cetera, et cetera, bump, bump, bump down the line until the last person in the line is using whatever gets turned on when demand exceeds supply, which is generally fossil fuels. (laughs) So 
All of which is just to say you're not using clean energy unless you're using new clean energy that you are bringing online to power your project. Is that roughly the sum of it? That's absolutely correct. If you're going to bring new load on the system as an electrolyzer, you have to support new clean supply or additionality. Although we're starting to move more towards new clean supply, which is going to be more intelligible term for a lot of people. <laughs> as you said, if you don't, if you add demand to the grid, you don't bring new supply with it. As you say, the marginal generators will turn on to supply the added demand and this will be gas. So you're going to end up having highly emitting hydrogen uh, without supporting new clean supply. And I always like to use this kind of visual of a world where additionality or new clean supply are not required. This means that technically all existing nuclear generator in the U.S. can sell their credits for hydrogen production because there's absolutely no requirement for the credits that will be used to offset emissions to come from new resources. They can come from existing resources, which could be nuclear generators. There is enough nuclear generation to supply enough nuclear credits to dwarf even a high estimate of hydrogen production between now and 2030. So what this means is hydrogen production between now and 2030, where hydrogen electrolyzers could plug to the grid, do absolutely nothing, draw on grid power, have high emissions, and purchase these cheap nuclear credits uh, without really doing anything to the grid uh, to really net out their emissions. Right. And just to reiterate, all that power that is going to the electrolyzers from the nuclear used to be going somewhere else. So whoever was using that power before, that's now additional demand on the system. And again, when demand exceeds supply, the marginal generator gets turned on and that's fossil fuels. So all those electrolyzers coming online and simply claiming that nuclear power, you'd get the truly perverse outcome of the electrolyzers claiming to be clean, but total emissions on that grid going up substantially. That's correct. Absolutely. This is becoming, I think, inarguable in many sense that additionality is fundamental for the system to remotely work. And again, this is corroborated by all the studies that we're seeing here, Princeton Energy Innovation, Rhodium, and many, many EU studies, which we can glean a lot of things from. But you say it's, you say it's clear and fundamental. Nonetheless, <laughs> there are uh, industry players specifically saying that the additionality, I mean, this, the additionality pillar is sort of the main axis of dispute here. This is precisely what like big utilities don't want an additionality requirement. And they, um, you know, they have a lot of arguments for why, but one of the things they say, one of the arguments I, th they had, which struck me as at least semi-plausible, is their sort of thing is, you know, you're doing these models like Princeton modeled all these electrolyzers coming online without the additionality requirement, showing that it raised, you know, substantially raised grid emissions. The industry's counter is, well, we have all these broad emission reduction policies you know, we got like cap and trade in Washington and California. We got the EPA that's coming out with standards on power plants and we got, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's just not plausible that emissions overall are going to go up. It's, it's the broader economy-wide emission reductions that are going to take care of emission reductions. That shouldn't be our 
responsibility, basically. Like we should just be able to use the existing clean energy. Let's address that because we always hear this this argument, right? It's like, why are you adding all these rules when the grid's getting cleaner and everything's going to be merry and great and we don't <laughs> need to think about it? Uh, well, let's take the IRA because it's always posited as the reason why we know the grid's getting uh, going to get cleaner so we don't have to worry about anything. The IRA is historic, right? And we're all very excited about it and it has the potential to be a game changer for the market. However, it's mostly carrots, very little sticks. Mm. So the outcome of it remains really not guaranteed. We have a lot of work to do to make sure it's implemented in a way that actually delivers on all its potential. That's one. Two, no matter how clean the grid gets in the next seven, eight years, you're still going to have the issue of marginal emissions, right? right? Because marginal generators for the foreseeable futures will still be gas. Um, so even if the grid's getting on the whole cleaner and your electrolyzers are still running during those evening hours, when the sun isn't shining, the wind isn't great, turning on marginal emissions or marginal generators, that would still be on the whole a, a very dirty hydrogen resource. So essentially basing, loosening up rules based on the hubris that everything is going to become clean. So when I have to worry about it, it's just demonstrably false. Yes, it seems premature to be making policy premised on the notion that we're going to succeed in this long-term thing of reducing uh, emissions. It's a little early for that. Exactly. And actually, right before I came in, I was doing a quick back-of-the-napkin envelope calculation. Even if the grid were to be 80-plus percent cleaner than today by 2030, you really still don't have a lot of margin to use grid power, no more than 10-20%. Again, Electrolysis is power hungry. So even the, the smallest amount of fossil fuels will blow you right out of the IRA thresholds. Right. And, you know, I'll, I'll pause to say this, and I might repeat it a couple of times throughout the pod. This is not to say that an electrolyzer can't plug into the grid and start making hydrogen. It's just to say you're not going to get $3 per kilogram of subsidy <laughs> if you do that, right? These are not like harsh restrictions, we're talking about whether we're going to give you tens of billions of dollars. You know, like that's not that's not the mean parent. Exactly. It's just some basic rules. We don't want to subsidize uh, I- increased emissions. So it sounds simple, right? Like if I'm I'm going to bring an electrolyzer online, I just bring a like a, a a solar farm along with it. I use the solar farm's energy to run my electrolyzer. That's clearly additional, right? If I mm-hmm. if I'm building on-site renewable energy next to my electrolyzer at the same time, that's clearly additional. It's not as clear in some other fuzzy cases. So like, let's say I come online and I sign a PPA for power with, with a solar and wind farm that was built a year and a half ago, right? So it's new ish, but it's also the case that maybe if my electrolyzer hadn't come online, that clean power would be going to someone else. So I'm just displacing existing clean energy. So what exactly, like what are the, in these edge cases, what are we defining as new and additional? Is there some sort of threshold, uh, you know, like the renewable energy must be built within six months or do what is, what are we, how do we get specific there? Yeah, that's a great question. There are several schools of thought. Uh, we haven't settled it. I think everyone agrees that this has to be the most straightforward way for developers because 
believe it or not, we're not in the business of suffocating this industry, Dave. We just want to make <laughs> sure it's actually clean and, and in line with what we need. So you have a school of thought that says, look, simplify, just say anything after the IRA or anything built after the IRA will count as new. Oh, for 10 years? Yes, That's... exactly. Yes. Pro, it's very easy to administer. I, I'm not a big fan of it because, you know, you put it well, this would have been built anyway. So by adding demand to a system that was being built not for me, something else will turn on on the system right. and that will likely be at least a mix of, of fossil fuels. You have another school of thought that wants to mirror what the EU did, the Europeans did. So they adopted a moving vintage as opposed to that fixed vintage and said, okay, additionality counts as a PPA signed with a new winter solar farm that comes online within 36 months of the electrolyzer. Hmm. That is interesting. It's not perfect, but we have to be able to administer the system. I like this moving vintage. You can add the condition that additionality could be met by showing, say, in signing the PPA, that the electrolyzer accounts for much of the financial risk or helps secure the funding. You could add more conditions, but I like the moving vintage a lot more than the fixed vintage. And then you can layer on kind of some PPA conditions to carve out the incremental financial effect of adding electrolyzer on the grid to a wind or solar farm. Right. And we should acknowledge in the end, there's some element of the arbitrary here because there is no absolute metaphysical correct answer in a lot of these cases, right? Like these are all about counterfactuals. Would the renewable energy have been built in the absence of this electrolyzer? And like any counterfactual, there's no definitive, there's no way of being definitive, right? Uh, you're just using heuristics in the end. You have to, you have to define some thresholds somewhere, but this is not a, this is not a area where sort of precision and certainty are really possible. That's correct. It, it, a system that works well, that is rigorous enough to right. minimize against uh, the worst, I think is, is, you know, is, is good enough for us. And the last thing about additionality is, of course, the big argument from industry is this will substantially raise costs. It will wipe out the cost advantage we have against existing gray hydrogen, and it will strangle the industry in the crib, and it will never get going. You know, and in some sense, this is all, too, about a counterfactual. We're all arguing about what would happen if we did X, and so no one can really definitively say, but what evidence do we have that that's wrong? The dead-on-arrival claims obviously are being branded, right, that we are going to suffer. Yes, dead-on-arrival. Absolutely. So I would love to talk about the costs for the three pillars as a package because I think this is the really interesting one. Okay, but yeah, let's put the cost off to or through the pillars then. That's that's a good idea. The second pillar yeah. is much more simple. We can get through it pretty quick. So the first pillar is additional. For your electrolyzer to be clean, it has to be drawing from new renewable energy. The second is regionality, which means your electrolyzer has to be drawing new clean electricity from the grid you're on, from the regional grid you're consuming on. So you can't just buy... Like if you're on a super dirty grid and you're buying clean energy that's made in California, right? Like clean energy in California is not displacing nearly as much carbon as clean energy on your dirty grid where you're operating would. So grids are not equivalent, right, uh, in terms of carbon emissions. So you need to be displacing carbon on your grid. And that's pretty straightforward. And as far as I can tell, most everybody agrees 
roughly with this idea. I think insofar as there's any controversy, it's just sort of like, where do you draw the line? What is the same grid? Is there, is there controversies there worth getting into? You're right. This is one of the least contentious pillars. Everyone agrees that there has to be some geographic bound to the clean energy you claim is netting out your effect. Right. In terms of how do you define the boundaries, there are several options that could work. We're still considering which one makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. The simplest one is to say, look, as long as the electrolyzer and the new clean supply are located in the same load balancing authority, that's good enough for us. That's very simple. However, it could have some issues because some load balancing authorities are very large and streaked with a lot of congestion. Like, for example, MISO is an excellent one. It's the one load balancing authority, and yet there's a big transmission constraint between MISO North and MISO South. Meanwhile, under that system, you could still locate your electrolyzer and your new supply anywhere you want, you know, with disregard to the actual congestion and whether you're actually netting out your emissions with this clean energy project that you supported or not. So the other approach, which is a hybrid, quite interesting, and I'm leaning towards that one. It says, okay, let's let's break it out between RTO regions and non-RTO regions. Within RTO regions like PJM, MISO, ERCOT, so on, we have to look at the LMPs, which are a good proxy for congestion, uh, locational marginal prices. Right. And those are set around a particular node on the grid. And a node on the grid is what? Just a, is there a clear definition of what counts as a node? Is it just where there's a transformer or what? That's a good question. I mean, usually it's, it's going to be the place that sets the price. I don't know how to explain it in engineering terms, (laughs) unfortunately. We'll just say it's the atomic unit. Let's say if you're looking at grids, sort of like a grid is made up of nodes. Correct. And it's the excellent kind of the best proxy we have to understand the supply and demand dynamics around a granular piece of the grid. So I like this because RTOs already report LMPs. They already report them and collect them and so on. So the notion is that electrolyzers and the clean energy supply that is netting out their emissions uh, need to be located uh, within a region where the LMP differential is not bigger than X. Right. That is a very good proxy for, okay, there's no congestion between the two that's you know, roughly de- deliverable or mostly deliverable. You know, projects, developers already hedge against LMPs and signing contracts. This is not new to look at, you know, forecasts of LMPs. So we think this is a familiar tool. Right. So the data and information is there to make these calculations now. We wouldn't have to produce any new data. Right. But to continue with that, I mean, for non-RTO regions like the Southeast, where utilities don't necessarily report those, we're fine keeping it to the LBA or the load balancing authority because anyway, those tend to fit nicely with state boundaries. So congestion will not be, you know, unmanageable there. Okay. So that's additionality, got to be new clean energy. Regionality, it has to be in some definition, local clean energy. And then the third pillar is another controversial one. This is temporal granularity which, uh, you know, to put it in a more human, normal way, is just you need to match your consumption to production of renewable energy or clean energy on an hourly basis rather than the more conventional yearly basis. So, again, Volt's listeners who have been paying attention will be familiar with this general notion. There are lots of corporate players now like Google. Google wants to go 
zero energy. And, you know, the easiest low impact way to do that is just say, we consume X a year. We're going to go buy renewable energy certificates for X amount. Boom. We offset our use. We're clean. That's sort of like step one. But Google realizes that's not really accurately, that's not really accurately about your emissions and how much you're offsetting. So Google wants to move to an hourly system where it's measuring how much its consumption is matching up to renewable energy production on an hour by hour basis so that it can truly be zero carbon, so that it can truly offset its actual emissions in the actual world, not just as an accounting practice, right? So this notion is out there. So the idea here is that electrolyzers who, that want to be counted as clean should be required to do that. They should be clean on an hourly basis. This is extremely controversial <laughs> for a bunch of reasons, but let's start what industry wants or what the, you know, like constellation or, or, or next era, the, the utilities want is just, they're like, look, we have this system of yearly renewable energy certificates, yearly RECs. It works perfectly well. Why can't we just offset our energy on a yearly basis like everyone else does? Why are you making us do this bespoke granular thing? So it's just what's wrong with yearly offsetting? You've already teed it up really well. This is not a new dynamic, right? <laughs> this is where there's much more demand for granular tracking to really effectively claim that you are powered by clean energy. Annual matching is just no longer seen as an effective way of reducing emissions and still sends a signal that fossil fuels are needed. And this exact same thing applies to hydrogen, right? So suppose there's a Dave Roberts electrolyzer contracted with a new solar power project, but you run this electrolyzer at night or both when the sun is shining, when there's, when there's no sun, turning on the marginal generator and producing very high emissions. However, you have the sufficient volumetric amount of solar recs that were produced from the solar project you contracted with that are enough to, on paper, Right. So on an accounting basis, Correct. I have offset my my emissions. But in the real world, the solar is producing the energy during the day. I'm consuming energy during night. So in the real world, I consumed dirty power almost that entire time. And there's something perverse here, which is the cleaner the grid gets, the less your solar power will likely start abating emissions during the day because you'll have more solar on the system. And the when you turn on at night as an electrolyzer for the foreseeable future, gas will always be the marginal resource. Right. So on the whole, you'll be producing a lot more emissions than you're actually reducing. So it's an interesting perverse effect that may happen with a cleaner grid. All this to say that hourly matching is necessary to meet statutory requirements, to meet the IRA threshold of 0.45 kilogram per kilogram to get the $3 per kilogram. And this is corroborated by, again, Princeton upcoming energy innovation study, even rhodium study, which was not very friendly to hourly <laughs> matching in near term, found that without hourly matching, emissions could increase cumulatively by roughly 100 million metric tons this decade. <laughs> Enormous, <laughs> right? We spent $100 billion to raise emissions 100 million tons. <laughs> it, there we go. That's the U.S. carrot system for you. <laughs> This is why we absolutely need this. It's corroborated by studies. You cannot reach the IRA thresholds without tracking your consumption on an hourly basis with the clean energy project that you procured with. Right. So there's two big objections to this from industry. The first is from industry and also is shared by some other analysts, which is just that 
the system of hourly matching, basically producing hourly wrecks rather than yearly wrecks, is just not mature. It's just not ready. There's not enough people doing it and forcing the industry to wait on that getting stood up and, you know, sophisticated enough to work would delay the industry in these crucial first few years. So a lot of the argument is just over how baked is hourly matching? How ready is it? Yeah, I I find this to be a little bit of a lazy argument because it clearly does not look at the state of play on the ground, nor what the experts say could happen within less than two years. So I think now, even for folks who are out there saying this is not doable in the near term, it needs time, even those folks agree that there are no technical challenges to doing this. This is really not rocket science. The you know generation is already metered, consumption is already metered. You just need a wreck in the middle that can capture the hourly variations. And people are doing it. It's not just and that it's doable it. now, but people are doing it. Exactly. The two biggest registries in the U.S., Emirates and PJM, are now offering hourly tracking. Emirates has been doing this for three years. Even in places where Emirates and PJ, I mean, PJM is new, but even in places where Emirates does not track, there are third-party tracking mechanisms. Um, there are utilities. They're not sophisticated necessarily. Smaller, kind of like Madison Gas and Electric, for instance, in Wisconsin, offering a 24-7 tariffs that require hourly matching. The momentum is in this direction. The Biden administration put out an executive order now requiring the federal government by 2030 hourly match. Right. The federal government's going to have to start accounting for hourly. Uh, uh, if the feds can do it, anyone can do it. <laughs> yeah. And let's just pause and stress here that PJM is, is, a, is a big Midwestern uh, wholesale power market and uh, a balancing area that has developed and implemented hourly matching just in the last year. So this is like a big industry player. These are not like little startups or whatever that are doing this. And they did that because of customer demand, right? Uh, This is, again, everyone tries to blame the the pillars on hydrogen. The market's heading in this direction anyway, right? right? This is just about meeting what the law requires and making sure we're actually consistent with the direction of the market. So it's already being done. Emirates has said multiple times, look, we're willing to track anywhere in the U.S. or roughly anywhere in the U.S., But if registries want to scale themselves from annual to hourly, experts say, look, you can scale very fast because there are no technical issues here. You could scale within 12 to 18 months. That is much less than what electrolyzers will need to scale, right? They'll need two years plus. So again, I always say it's a lazy argument because it doesn't take into account what's already happening, how Mm. long it took for it to happen, and how fast things can scale if everyone else wants to do it as well. Yes. And one thing I also point out is right now, the big companies that don't want to mess with it, don't want to mess with hourly matching are whinging and whining about it. But if you put it on paper and made it a requirement, all of a sudden they would be advocates for it (laughs) and boosters of it and would be accelerating it. You know, this is the thing is like if there's a hundred billion dollar pot at the end of the rainbow, of course, utilities are going to figure out how to hourly match. Like (laughs) utilities will do a lot of things for a hundred billion dollars. You know what I mean? So this this whole idea that like, Oh, thanks for offering the hundred billion, but it's such a hassle, you know, like, come on guys. Like this, this, if there was a hundred billion dollars on the line, I'm pretty sure you all could 
figure out how to do this. Absolutely. I mean, Hydrogen Europe in the European context is a big trade group for hydrogen companies and so on who fought the European Commission tooth and nail for two years against hourly, you know, branding messages that this is not doable, it's impossible. After the passage of the European rules requiring hourly starting in 2030, but with no grandfathering, which means projects have to start doing hourly really effectively today. Anyway, they came out to say, yeah, this is doable. <laughs> <laughs> you know, singing the same song to, you know, oh, it's going to be more competitive, but hey, it's going to be doable. So it's a really interesting sneak peek into what you were saying of when there's such a big prize at the end of the tunnel and something already happening with all the technical elements already in place, we should not be worried. It should not happen. It can't happen. It will happen. It can't happen. Right, right. And like, like you say, this whole fight went down in Europe and got settled and now they're doing it. So it's doable. So you think you're confident that if this was made a requirement, by the time the first electrolyzers started coming online, which would be two or three years out at least just to get them built, hourly matching could be ready. You're confident of that. Yes, and I'm definitely not the expert about that. I have listened to the big experts who have done this, who you know are the ones who have the biggest stake in doing this. They all agree this could be done in a very short period of time. And it's already being done. So technically, Emirates, again, I have to repeat, can do it almost everywhere in the country if there needs to be some nationwide harmonization between various regions and so on. This could be done really fast. Right. So... The other thing that sometimes comes up in the context of this hourly idea is that if you are really only going to be operating your electrolyzer in the actual hours where clean energy is producing, you are by necessity going to be starting and stopping your electrolyzer. You're going to be cranking it up when the clean power comes online and cranking it back down when the clean power goes offline because you uh you know there's no point in producing if you're not getting that big fat subsidy and the sort of conventional wisdom is i think that electrolyzers are one of these big industrial applications where the finances the sort of uh, the, the business case depends on it running constantly and that if you force it to ramp up and down to match coming and going power you're going to ruin the economics and people won't build them. What do you what do you say about that flexibility question of electrolyzers? Great. Let's address that and then definitely want to get to the costs because you know the jury is no longer out as to whether it's doable. Hourly matching <sighs> is doable. Now the jury is out as to wow, is it going to be super costly and suffocate the industry? So we'd love to get to the cost piece, but on the flexibility false period, electrolyzers are designed for intermittency specifically PEM electrolyzers. And I know you've had that great conversation with Electric Hydrogen and Rafi Garavidian. They're one of the foremost uh, PEM manufacturers. They're designed for intermittency. So they can absolutely handle that. Now, this is where it kind of, okay, from a technical standpoint, there's nothing that stops electrolyzers from ramping up and down. Um, let's get to the cost piece, which is the, the real big one here. I think the first question we need to ask is, what are the operational parameters that will make an electrolyzer pencil out. Is it running 24-7 or something less than that? And what we're seeing is that they don't need to run 24-7 to achieve cost-competitive economics. It's somewhere closer to 50 to 70%. Huh. And the reason is that the more you operate, 
that's okay for your CapEx. That's good. Mm -hmm. But you're going to start capturing higher and higher power prices. Electricity prices are the biggest cost component of electrolyzer. So at some point, you're going to start having diminishing returns with higher and higher corporations. And that is not at all kind of new information. We've known this for a while. The IEA, IRENA, even Hydrogen Europe, again, that industry trade group I mentioned, have all agreed that or shown that really optimal operations are between 50 to 70%. So we've established it. We don't need 24-7 operations. We need somewhere between 50 and 70 50 and 70% uh, uh, capacity factor, what they call running 50 to 70% of the time. Correct. Absolutely. The good news is what we're seeing from a range of analyses being done by developers, OEMs, independent research groups, is that with hourly matching, you can achieve those levels in many places in the U.S. And the winning strategy is to oversize the wind and solar hybrid in a region with decent wind and solar, it doesn't have to be best in class, and you can achieve those levels of operation and be very cost competitive. Right. Just to flesh out that picture you just painted, because I, I think it's really interesting. So, you know, we were talking about how if you build an electrolyzer and you build, say, a wind and solar hybrid power plant next to it, attached to it, not even attached to a grid, just attached to it, obviously the resulting hydrogen is clean, right? Mm-hmm. There's no, that's the unambiguous case. Then there's a second option, which is also unambiguously clean, which is building the same arrangement, connecting it to the grid, but never drawing power from the grid, right? Only using the locally produced power, but then overbuilding that wind and solar power so that it's producing more than you need and then exporting the extra to the grid as another income stream. So you get... A couple of things from that. One, wind and solar tend to be anti-correlated, right? So like one's on when the other's not. So you're going to cover more of your, right? You're going to get your capacity factor up and you get extra money from selling your extra renewable energy to the grid. That's, so that's a, the completely off-grid and then the sort of one-way connection to the grid. That's Both those are, are viable options where you're only consuming the local clean energy you generate. But in the second case, you're also selling excess clean energy, which is improving your economics. Yeah, economics absolutely. And it could be good for the grid too, because you're probably only going to sell that power during high grid hours or high grid prices, right? Uh, which means that the grid really needs it, right? So you could actually be helpful. You don't need to sell that much excess, right? Because some folks are saying, well, what, you know, what if you don't have that ability to sell your excess? The economics will still work. Oversizing a wind and solar hybrid seems to be a really interesting case for those early electrolyzers that need to run more than a certain share because they're still expensive. So you oversize your wind and solar to the point that you get your electrolyzer up to the capacity factor that you need it to be economic. And then if you just curtail the rest of that wind and solar, waste it, basically, still the economics work out, you say? What we're seeing, yes, it would still work. The The credits are rich enough um, to make things work. And let me, I mean, let's translate the credit from a dollar to kilogram to a dollar per megawatt hour, because folks kind of understand the dollar per megawatt hour a little bit more. Right. At the current efficiency of electrolyzers, you can generally produce about 20 kilograms of hydrogen per megawatt hour of power you consume. Mm-hmm. You get, you're getting $3 per kilogram for every kilogram of hydrogen you're producing. So that's a total of roughly $60 per megawatt hour of subsidy, which means that you're willing to pay 
power price of up to $60 per megawatt hour. And the PTC is still going to uh, kind of make you whole. Now, things are a little bit more complicated than that, but this shows you just the significance of the subsidy in terms of how much it could reduce the, the input costs to your system. Right. Coming back again to the enormous <laughs> size of this subsidy relative to the, exactly. to the industry. So, you know, the, the industry's sort of complaint, as is familiar with the proposal for any new regulation of any kind, is that this regulation will um, cripple the industry. It's too much, too restrictive, too much hassle. It's going to strangle the industry in the crib. It's not affordable. And it just to put, throw a specific worry in there amidst that, one of the sort of concrete worries is that if these restrictions raise the price of green hydrogen in the short term, one perverse effect might be that more of the market turns to blue hydrogen, which is hydrogen made with fossil fuels, but then with carbon capture and storage attached to it. Mm -hmm. And that carbon capture and storage is also going to get a big fat subsidy out of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. So the worry here that I've heard articulated is you make truly clean hydrogen more expensive. You're just going to shift the whole market to blue hydrogen, and then they're going to get sort of locked in. You're going to get path dependence. You're going to get blue hydrogen sort of making itself a place in the market, even though everybody knows in the long, long term we need it all to be green. Right. Do you think there's anything to those worries? I would love to say one more thing before we close up on the pillars, because it, it kind of is related to this argument that, oh, we're going to suffocate the market so much that blue is going to win. What is really interesting in what we're seeing from opposition to the pillars is something I alluded to earlier, which is we're now seeing the opposition sort of splitting and you have renewable developers that do not like any of that starting to come around to additionality or new supply because it's like, hey, I could sell more wind turbines. And right. Why, why on earth would they be opposed to this? This right. is a requirement that a bunch more renewable energy get built. Exactly. This is where the hourly matching piece comes in, right? So you have a next era in Florida that has very little access to wind, if any. Mm. Well, maybe it can't do hourly matching because it's going to be pretty low utilization of its electrolyzer if it's only following solar. Right. Right. Uh, today, that may not work. Now, in a few years, as electrolyzer prices drop and you can run your electrolyzer much less, hey, let the market be the market. Right. But today, what we're subsidizing, we want to make sure they're actually clean projects. Next era may not be able to do that. So now you have next era kind of saying maybe additionality is fine. Hourly matching is out of the picture. Ah. Meanwhile, you have Constellation, the nuclear giant. Right. You know, would love to talk more about their plans because they're truly incredible. Um, they're fiercely fighting additionality or new supply because it doesn't allow them to uh, utilize a lot of their existing nuclear plants. Right. But they love hourly because nuclear generates 25%, yes. right? So hourly is nothing to nuclear. Nothing to nuclear, right? They come on top to compared to any other resource. So you have Constellation fiercely supporting hourly fiercely opposing additionality. So it's kind of a bouquet where everyone just chooses whatever <laughs> maximizes their own Whatever's going to work best for their short-term profits. Let's, uh, exactly. let's, let's just say. Emissions be damned, right? But let's get to the blue hydrogen question because this is a new argument that I'm truly fascinated by. I don't see any evidence of that. So the 45Q 
carbon capture and storage tax credits are indeed generous. And in some pockets of the U.S., yes, indeed, we expect that blue hydrogen could be competitive and be deployed by utilizing the 45Q credits. But we're not seeing blue hydrogen projects, levelized cost of hydrogen, dropping to less than $1, which is kind of the threshold for today's hydrogen, Mm. or dropping to even zero and negative, which we're seeing in some places in the U.S. where renewables are particularly great. Uh, We're seeing we're hovering around the zero, right? So I don't see the huge subsidy that we're seeing in some pockets for electrolytic hydrogen. And blue deals with its own challenges, right? You need to be close to a carbon storage basin. You yeah. need carbon pipelines. It's not well, like- you need carbon capture. Correct. That works, <laughs> which, which is itself is not something that's been shown, you know, in the U.S. Exactly. Blue hasn't had a merry or CCS hasn't had a, you know, merry trajectory so far. <laughs> I don't know why. Blue hydrogen is going to just mushroom all over the place. If you take the the one blue hydrogen project that's been proposed in Louisiana by Air Products, that's been held up in public opposition for months now. So besides the fact that CCS has not been easy to deploy, you have to be close to a carbon storage basin, you may need pipelines. Public opposition is a real thing here for more gas infrastructure. So it's one of these illusory scare tactics being branded that if you actually unpack dynamics, it's really, I don't see any evidence of that. So no worry about blue, about blue hydrogen. And I, and I kind of agree, like everybody keeps deploying CCS in these theoretical model ways, you know, and I keep kind of thinking like somebody needs to actually go build a couple of these things and show that they work before we continue any of these conversations. Build a couple that work first. Yeah. One way to address the sort of notion that these three pillars raise costs too much is to point out that there are existing projects being built that will meet the three pillars that are penciling out. So mm-hmm. so talk a little bit of, of, about what we're seeing happen now. Sure. The AES Air Products project that we discussed, that's one of the bigger projects in the U.S. That's going to be three pillar compliant. Are they building on-site? They're entirely on-site renewables? I believe so. Yes. Fully hourly matched. So it will go up and down with the production of wind and solar. Mm. Intersect Power, historically big solar developer, moving into hydrogen. They have a bunch of projects in the pipeline that are three pillars compliant. They're one of the best voices out there demonstrating this is doable, right? Mm-hmm. And I do want to point that. I know we've you know joked around and there is a lot of industry players that are trying to steer billions of dollars to maximize their profits, but there's a subset of industry players have been just excellent, right? Intersect Power, Electric Hydrogen, whom you met with, uh, Synergetic, others have been really just fantastic at showing that this is absolutely feasible. And if you look at Europe and the rest of the world, these three pillars compliant projects are popping up everywhere. And the European hydrogen whatever uh, body that is more or less came out and said, We've looked into this. We believe the three pillars are doable. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, everyone keeps pointing to, and I'm happy to speak to the EU case, but everyone keeps saying, look, they pushed their hourly matching to 2030. That's not doable. It's a widely different context. First of all, if you look at, there's no grandfathering. So projects Mm. can start monthly. That's fine. But they have to switch to hourly by 2030. They sign long-term contracts. No one's going to sign a contract for 15, 20 years 
based on first monthly matching and then hourly, they're going to set themselves up from the outset to be able to hourly match. That's one. Two, the Europeans have a regulatory barrier to implementing hourly matching that we don't. They have to pass a federal law first, have it translated to 27 member state laws. Yeah. <laughs> that, was one of the, that was one of the reasons why the delayed hourly matching, again, without allowing grandfathering. We don't have any of that, right? So just to, the EU context keeps getting kind of branded left and right, but mm. the devil is in the details and we can glean a lot from that. And I'm hoping we can get back to that because it's an important uh, example. One of the things you hear industry say is, if you force us to make the hydrogen in close physical proximity to the renewable energy, we're going to end up like renewable energy far away from, from, from load. And that will mean we'll have to transport the hydrogen we make long distances to where it needs to be used. And that transport, the building of that transport infrastructure is going to sort of offset whatever emission gains you think you're making by forcing us to be near the renewable energy. You're not taking hydrogen, tr the transport of the produced hydrogen into account. So how do you think about that? Well, first of all, no one's opposed to grid-connected projects. So I don't know where this hypothesis comes from, that we're forcing projects to be very close <laughs> to renewables. Hey, if you Well, can at least in the region, right? In the same region. Correct. If you can do your three pillars and connect to the grid and produce your hydrogen closer to your load, that's great. We support that as long as you do your pillars. The second kind of comment I have to this is if you look at the map of where hydrogen demand is today, it's going to be in areas where there's a good resource of renewable energy. So it's mostly mm. Texas and the Gulf, but also in the Great Plains Midwest region mm. for ammonia and refineries. And we know that those existing uh, customers will likely be the biggest source of demand in this decade for clean hydrogen because they already have existing supply chains and so on. Making clean fuels? Yeah, replacing existing status quo hydrogen with cleaner hydrogen. Let's put it this way. Yeah. Um, that's going to be the, the bulk of demand in this decade, which means that if you look at the map, you're, you know, you're not far off from sources of good wind and solar which means that this transport thing looks pretty manageable. Uh, if you consider where the sources of clean hydrogen this decade will likely be, they're in pretty good resource regions. The third piece that I think is key to keep in mind is that the 45V tax credits are not the only subsidy on the table, right? They can't solve every single industry problem. This is where it becomes kind of part of a menu of subsidies. So the DOE Hydrogen Hubs money, biggest DOE demonstration project in its history, is going to help address a lot of these, you know, ecosystem issues. Yeah, the idea is to build these hubs where you're sort of like you've got the renewable energy and the electrolysis and the hydrogen consuming end use. Correct. Basically being built next to one another. So you, so you eliminate. Absolutely. You have other subsidies. You have the hubs. The DOE Hydrogen Shot is also spending a lot of money. We create a hydrogen ecosystem. States are now passing and contemplating hydrogen-specific tax credits for end uses. So all this to say that we can't burden the tax credits with solving every single industry question. <laughs> um, we, we can't gut them just because you know we want to think about all these things. And also, I'm inclined to say, like, look, guys, we're like we're subsidizing the crap out of the renewable energy. 
We're subsidizing the crap out of the electrolysis to the point that some of these projects, basically the U.S. government is going to be paying you Mm -hmm. (laughs) to do this. You guys can maybe cover transport, you know, like it's not a huge, it doesn't seem like a huge ask. I have a feeling they'll figure that one out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this feels to me like a grasping at straws kind of thing. Right. Okay, but the transport is going to be impossible. There are options. Uh, do grid connections. Just meet your pillars, essentially. Let's go back to Constellation for a minute because this is, I mean, this is just a gripe, but I feel like I want to cover it. You know, Constellation is a utility that is benefiting from recently passed subsidies designed to keep existing nuclear plants open, right? There's a whole separate debate in the energy world. People are familiar with it. Should we let them close on schedule? Should we pay to keep them open? A couple of states have passed these huge subsidies to keep them open. And Constellation is currently wallowing in those subsidies. And it's worth noting, a lot of the people who it is now criticizing (laughs) and fighting against in this hydrogen debate are some of the very people who went to bat for it to get it those nuclear subsidies, right? Like it's it's now bad-mouthing Princeton's modeling, but of course that crew at Princeton has been laying itself on the railroad tracks trying to get these existing nuclear plants subsidized. So just to say, like, we're wallowing in nuclear subsidies, and now we want to turn around and be allowed to just plug electrolyzers into our existing nuclear plants and layer on a whole new giant subsidy is just like, I don't know what the right word is. It's greedy. It seems crude and greedy, if I'm being totally honest. Maybe you have nicer words. I sadly don't. Um, (laughs) Well, yeah, of course, they're not very happy with the Princeton folks who are kind of standing between them and enormous profits (laughs) above and beyond what they were already doing. So fully agree with you, first of all. I think Constellation is basking in subsidies at this point. They're very well taken care of. Actually, right before this podcast, I was speaking to a nuclear lawyer at NRDC and kind of asking her, hey, could you just remind me of all the subsidies that the nuclear can now tap into? She actually had to take a couple of seconds just to see where she could where to start <laughs> because there are so many buckets. Get the calculator out. Exactly. So Constellation, as I alluded to earlier, is fiercely fighting and lobbying policymakers against requiring additionality or new clean supply uh, because that would not allow them to utilize their existing nuclear plants for hydrogen production and maximum profits. No new clean supply or no additionality would be an absolute goldmine for Constellation. Yeah. They have two very lucrative options. One is to divert their existing nuclear power to hydrogen projects. So essentially co-locate an electrolyzer with their nuclear plant and divert a share of the output of that nuclear plant to hydrogen production. And this seems to be Constellation's main plan. As I mentioned earlier, the tax credits, the hydrogen tax credits, are roughly equivalent to $60 per megawatt hour. Constellation is not getting that at the market, on the market. Right? You're getting, <laughs> right. Power prices are way lower than that. Maybe 2022 was an off year, but generally they're way lower than that. So they're like, huh, light bulb, there's a huge lucrative opportunity for us to divert our power away from the grid and utilize this very lucrative opportunity to produce hydrogen with our power. And basically changing nothing else, right? Like just (laughs) harvesting a giant new set of subsidies having changed operationally 
almost nothing. Absolutely. And that would be terrible for emissions. Could you imagine megawatts and gigawatts of diverted nuclear energy from the grid? That would be terrible for emissions, result in nefarious grid impacts in terms of prices, reliability, and emissions be damned. Actually, this is playing out in Illinois right now. This is Constellation's powerhouse where they have a lot of their nuclear capacity. They have plans to divert their power away from the grid. We estimate that emissions in Illinois could increase by seven, somewhere up to 45%, uh, depending on how much of the output you're actually diverting and completely torpedoing over the state's clean energy goals. Yeah, basically wiping out the gains of their big, hard-fought, complex clean energy legislation, which they just passed. Which, by the way, supported Constellation, even if they're not getting a lot of money from it for multiple reasons. But it supported Constellation because supposedly it was helping support that decarbonization. So it's a perilous terrain. (laughs) That's number one. It's divert our power, get 60 bucks per mega hour. We're not getting on the market. Hugely lucrative. Option number two is just sell large volumes of credits, um, kind of like Rex, but for nuclear Mm -hmm. uh, from their existing nukes, because there's currently no market for those credits outside of a few states, Mm. sex states. And this is a huge volume of credits, right? As I mentioned to earlier, there's enough potential nuclear credits to completely cover all hydrogen production that we could expect between now and 2030. So this is the same thing is you're doing nothing on the grid, getting paid for generation already very heavily subsidized by the U.S. taxpayer and allowing electrolyzers to just plug on the grid, purchase credits that mean nothing and increase emissions, right? So to sum up, this is a goldmine for Constellation um, <laughs> without doing anything. I mean, it's a goldmine for them, whichever way it turns out. That's kind of the rub here. Like they're, they're awash in subsidy money no matter what they do. They're just trying to stack it now. Absolutely. And, you know, again, emissions, impacts on the grids, so on and so forth, be damned. So it is unfortunately blatant greed. <sighs> and they're out there, you know claiming that nuclear is getting left out and that this is unlawful. And the best part is that no one wants to outlaw the use of nuclear for hydrogen. There are options, right? For instance, if you operate your nuclear plant, that can count as nuclear supply. You could do that. They refuse that. Not lucrative enough. You could build new nuclear. Everybody keeps saying how great nuclear is, but why didn't you build some new on it and hook that up to electrolyzer? Exactly. We even give them the option of, hey, look at what the Europeans did. They said during low-priced hours, which are a good proxy for clean grid, we can relax hourly requirements and sell your your credits during those low-priced hours because it's a proxy for some generator curtailing somewhere. So this kind of can count as nuclear supply if you spur that generator. Not enough hours for us. So we are not in the business of suffocating nuclear. We're in the business of making sure it meets the same requirements as everyone else. Right. Or they could just make the hydrogen and not get a giant subsidy. You know, like there's no one telling them they can't do that. Again, these are not, nothing's being prohibited here. Correct. It's just like, if we're going to give you a bunch of money, we'd like to have a few conditions on it. (laughs) Absolutely. That's absolutely right. So... Just to review where we've been so far, there's these three pillars that characterize truly clean hydrogen. It's additional, it comes from new energy, comes from energy that's on the same grid you're on, and it is matched up hourly with your consumption. Europe has more or less embraced these conditions. It's different timing on the hourly for various 
reasons, but the European Commission has said these are absolutely doable. These are, are this will not strangle <laughs> the industry in the crib. So I have two questions about this. One is, one argument you hear is, it just stands to reason that more requirements and tighter requirements are going to slow the pace of development relative to no requirements, right? Uh, so we'd, we'd build more electrolyzers if we could get the subsidy for any damn thing we do. So it's going to slow the industry. And, and what's most important here, and this is the argument I think appeals to a lot of people, and this is the argument Rhodium uses, mm-hmm. I'm sure you're familiar. Their whole thing is, yes, slightly looser additionality requirements would potentially raise greenhouse gas emissions in the near term, but that is worth it because you're radically accelerating the scaling up of electrolyzers and the scaling up of green hydrogen, which is going to reduce way more emissions in the long term than whatever this short term, you know, surge is. So basically like the short term surge is worth it because you're buying huge long term reductions. So what do you make of that trade off is my first question. First of all, increasing emissions is against statutory requirements. I want to get back to that. But yeah. <laughs> first on the first on the merits. Yeah, you're blatantly flouting the law, right? The IRA, the IRA is meant to be given to projects that reduce emissions by ninety five percent relative to today's hydrogen. You are subsidizing projects that have twice as much. So it's, you're already flouting statutory requirements by adopting some sort of a phase in or transition periods, like what Rhodium uh, suggests. That's one. Two. I have full respect for Rhodium and, you know, we have worked with them a ton, but fully disagree with this notion of a trade-off, right? As I mentioned earlier, what we're seeing from financial analyses, from projects already being kind of doing the three pillars, the three pillars will not harm scale. They will ensure healthy, durable scale. We, NRDC has been one of the first big enviros to come out in support of hydrogen three years ago and say, look, this is an important tool in the toolbox. We should scale it. However, this doesn't mean we have to scale it recklessly, right? We have to make sure it's actually being done right. So I fully disagree with this notion of a trade-off between near-term emission increases against the law and scaling the industry. You could do both. The third piece, which people tend to forget, what will slow down this industry is public opposition. Could you imagine mm. if the U.S. taxpayer is, it knows that they're subsidizing increased emissions <laughs> That's not going to be pretty. And hydrogen is already a very contentious resource. Yeah, it's contentious, but also it's still a little bit kind of undefined a little bit. It's a little bit fuzzy. So like these next few years and how it gets treated and how it gets introduced to the broader public is very important, right? Like that is the is- first touch point. I fully agree with you. And I love one of the the quotes by Paul Wilkins, who I think is the vice president of electric hydrogen. In Washington Post, he said, look, if in five years this tax credit shows that this industry is increasing emissions, that's going to be terrible for our industry. So that will slow down scale. It's not the three pillars. And that always gets just glossed over. Right. We'd love to discuss this EU approach because I know that Rhodium ended up, you know, recommending that, but keeping it quite open-ended. Yeah. And I think Rhodium, yeah, endorsed, the idea is just that you start with yearly accounting and work your way up to hourly. You start with sort of broad regional 
requirements and then work your way up to more specific. It's same like you start with, I think they want to start with monthly recs and work their way. This idea of phasing in so you can get, get started quickly and then phase in tighter requirements over time. What do you think is wrong with that approach? It's trying to mirror the EU, and I think this is very misguided, right? Because the EU has a wildly different context. First of all, the EU has sticks, right? They have their emissions trading system, yes. which will help clamp down and really minimize any emissions increases from loose rules in the near term. We don't have that. That's one. Two, the EU does not have a production tax credit like we do. All of their subsidies are more on the demand side, so creating demand signals. That means that there's going to be a rush to the cheapest supply. Cheapest supply generally means that you want to operate during low-priced hours as right. a neutralizer because that's the biggest cost for you. And this generally means you're going to hover around the cleaner hours. Mm. We don't have that. We have a production tax credit that is worth $60 per megawatt hour that will incentivize electrolyzers to keep running as much as they can because they're, yeah, they're going to run maximal <laughs> when, when you're paid, not for your sort of capex to build, but for your output, you obviously are incentivized to output as much as possible, as many hours as possible. Absolutely. And then the third piece, which I alluded to earlier, the hourly matching phase in widely different context in the EU. Again, they have a regulatory barrier. We don't which is one of the reasons why they delayed it. We don't need to do that. Widely different contexts, we should not be blindly mirroring the EU. So I think we're open to discuss what a rigorous phase-in period could look like for the U.S., but it should not be mirroring the EU. Right. Well, energy innovation, and, and by the way, I should just say, um, a lot of what I learned about this, I learned by listening to Chris Nelder's Energy Transition Show, where he interviewed Eric Jamon from energy innovation if you want like the super <laughs> super nerdy technical <laughs> dive into all this um you know like if, if this if this isn't giving you enough whatever freaks out there who still don't feel like they got enough from this there's plenty more there but one of the things um energy innovation is recommending is a phase in but sort of different phase starting strict but crude, you know, not relying on sort of sophisticated hourly matching at the beginning, but just starting with sort of rough and ready, but relatively strict guidelines, and then evolving over time to something that's a little bit more granular and precise and a little bit looser. Because there, you know, Eric's point, which makes sense to me, is you don't often see industry passively agreeing to standards that they've gotten used to getting tighter. Right. But every industry would welcome standards that they're getting used to getting looser. Right. So his, his sort of thing is like, we don't have the sophistication to do it precisely now. Let's be strict and crude and then evolve toward slightly looser and smart. What do you make of that? Yeah. I think this is more related to the point they made in their comments that the most precise way of calculating life cycle greenhouse gas emissions of hydrogen projects is to Adopt the marginal emissions approach, which I know you hate that term, Dave, but emissionality. <laughs> um, yes. Essentially, you net out, you have to have a very granular way of accounting for what you're inducing on the grid and what you're netting out by locating some profit somewhere and kind of going that way. I know that they're slightly moving away from that because it's not easily implementable. Uh -huh. That's something we flirted with as well a few months ago and 
what we're hearing is like, this is elegant and nice, but from a developer standpoint, this may not be very workable. So the three pillars are very good proxy, right? For ensuring that your emissions are close to zero. Right. The ideal here is a sort of shimmering ideal in the distance is that for any given hour of power consumption, you know, in the end, eventually, you're going to be able to know specifically which generators provided it and specifically how much greenhouse gas were involved. Like, just as you can precisely know how much power you're using, you're eventually going to be able to precisely know how many greenhouse gases you're producing or displacing or avoiding, right? That's all going to be sort of available in one giant transparent registry and everybody's going to agree how to calculate it. And we're going to be able to base a lot of policy on that. I mean, it's going to solve a lot of tricky kind of short-term accounting and tracking and policy puzzles are going to be solved (laughs) once all that information is transparent and available. But as you say, that's a ways off. Absolutely. We strongly support this move to more granularity to give really the you know more accurate signals for what to invest in. I don't think this is necessary for this credit. The three pillars are straightforward enough for developers. They're rigorous enough to meet the IOA requirements. I'm supportive of just retaining that. Now, one can create a little bit of exceptions or derogations like what the EU did. So, for example... If the grid gets really, really clean, like 90, 95% clean, then maybe we can relax the additionality requirement. Or if LMPs are extremely low, which indicates renewable energy curtailment, for instance, then maybe we can relax hourly matching. We're open to that as long as the rigor of the system is, is maintained. So I don't think we need to completely overhaul to a marginal emissions approach to bake in a little bit more precisions for the outer years. Right. And presumably we'll, there'll be a lot of learning as we do this, uh, how to make it work better. So mm-hmm. this might be a dumb question, <laughs> but so say you're a treasury and you read the rhodium report and for whatever reason it strikes you as highly compelling and you're thinking, yeah, let's, let's set some relatively loose additionality requirements even though we'll get a little bit more greenhouse gas emissions in the short term, we'll get a lot more reductions in the long term. My thing is, which, as you said, that's just against the law. Like <laughs> the law says very clearly 0.45 kilograms per kilogram. Like it, the, the threshold for greenhouse, you know, life cycle emissions is very clear. So I guess my question is just sort of, isn't, some of this kind of an academic debate, like the IRS can't just contravene the clear written intent of the law. It's got to hold whatever details it puts in. It's got to result in that threshold or else it doesn't meet the law. Right. So it's, it's a lot of this just an academic debate. Like, what am I missing? Like they've, they don't seem to have the latitude that like industry is acting like they have. Absolutely. I fully agree with that. And the, the Treasury has been pretty tight-lipped about all of this, so it's really hard to see where they're landing. But you're spot on. Weak rules that clearly flout uh, statutory requirements would be you know, both unlawful and a complete abdication of responsibility. So I wouldn't be surprised af- at all if many groups end up suing, should the rules be very, very weak. Yeah. But we'd love to kind of let's talk about this legal piece. We have been doing a bunch of legal analyses with other groups and 
of the case for the pillars is, is ironclad, right? Because the way life cycle emissions are defined in the law requires that they account for emissions that projects induce on the system. So if I'm in Luxalizer and I'm you know, purchasing cheap credits from the existing nuke or renewable or so on and driving more gas on the system. Right. You induce that grid operator to turn on that extra gas. Correct. There is virtually no project in the U.S. that today will qualify under this boundary of emissions if they're not driving new clean supply that is hourly matched and deliverable. It's impossible for them to comply with 0.45 without these three pillars. Right. So if you want to make if you want to make this credit workable, those need to be in. If you want no projects to qualify unless they're co-located with a new source of supply, then you can do that, but I don't think that's the intent of the law. <laughs> and I don't think developers will be happy with that if, if it's only the behind-the-meter projects that are able to, to qualify. So the three pillars are absolutely necessary, and if they're flouted so blatantly, then that's just unlawful. In a sense, all this feels a little bit um, pointless to me because it's, the law is super clear. And if, you know, if, they, if they come out with standards that allow higher threshold, they're just going to get sued by a bunch of environmental groups. I mean, that would be a crappy outcome to have to wait you know, we don't have a lot of time to wait and mess around with lawsuits, but surely Treasury knows it doesn't have as much latitude as industry seems to frame it as having. Hopefully, Dave. Let's send them this little excerpt. Of the <laughs> you don't have to. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's crazy. I'm not a lawyer, but like the law is so clearly written that it's not there just doesn't seem to be a lot of fuzziness here. But, you know, who knows what our beloved Supreme Court could find if it ever finds its way up there. It's just, it's just a small side question. Mm-hmm. In terms of projects built entirely off-grid, right, one, and then projects built with a one-way connection to the grid, two, and then projects that are just grid-connected that just contract to have new solar and wind added to that grid, do you have any sense of, like, what the balance will be? Like, right now, there's some off-grid projects being built, right? So clearly, those are yeah. workable. Do you have any – I mean, are, are people going to gravitate toward grid-connected over the long term because it's cheaper? Or do you have any sense of like what kinds of projects are most likely to get built? Yeah, that's, that's very unclear. What we're seeing is most of the projects moving now are behind the meter, indeed. Do you know why? Like, is there a clear answer to why? If I had to speculate, it's just, it's there's so much less risk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everything's much cleaner. Every answer is much clearer. Exactly. It's just there's less risk overall, which I'm sure is very, it's, it's great for, you know, your your rate of capital and so on. Yeah, right. Um, but the level of fierce opposition we're seeing for the grid-connected kind of three-pillar system tells me, oh, there's a lot of interest <laughs> in, in connecting to the grid at some point soon. So we're seeing mostly behind the meter, but I, I expect that the grid-connected projects will certainly start popping up soon. Be really interesting to see how that plays out. Okay, okay. Um, Final question, and God bless all you listeners for your extraordinary patience. This is a complicated one. There was really no way to boil this one down. But final question, um, this is like everything in IRA. This is a carrot, right? A big subsidy, a big payout. And specifically, it's a supply side subsidy. This is literally a per kilogram of output subsidy. So it's all about supply. If you are taking a step back, and thinking about, in the long term, how to construct a robust and effective market for hydrogen in the clean energy system, 
Are there demand side policies that you think would work well to complement this really giant, <laughs> you know, battering ram of a supply side subsidy? What, what should we be doing on the demand side or is supply side is the battering ram enough? Great question. And this really gets to the core of look, 40, the tax credits are a big prize. They're not the only one, right? So we can't burden them and loosen the crap out of them because we want to, we're worried that the industry won't scale otherwise. I disagree with that. I think there's a, a good analogy to the renewable energy growth. You know, the wind and solar tax credits obviously were a big driver of the point where they were not the only driver, right? State RPS has played yes. an important role. Corporate uh, voluntary procurement played a really big role. Yeah, so, demand side was huge uh, all <laughs> along. Absolutely. So that's exactly the same case here. There's this giant, generous supply side push. It has to be, and, and already is, coupled by subsidies on the other side. What we're seeing globally, and this applies to the U.S., is one of the main barriers of getting hydrogen projects built is the lack of end uses. It's the lack of demand, right? And that's why only a very small share of projects go from announcement to FID. And just to be clear, this is not lack of demand for hydrogen. There's lots of hydrogen used. It's, it's lack of specifically demand for the still slightly somewhat more expensive clean hydrogen. Correct. No longer in many places. <laughs> yes, spurring end use is, is going to be important, especially since we didn't speak of that, but maybe that's another episode. <laughs> hydrogen should not be used everywhere, right? This is a resource that is energy intensive. It has its place in some important hard to electrify sectors like steel and maybe shipping and so on, not widespread in the economy. So focused demand side policies could be really interesting here to really divert the market to the quote unquote good uses, right? So the hydrogen hubs are going to be really interesting. And again, this is a big subsidy we keep forgetting. Yeah. Have they talked about what end uses qualify or what they're going to put in those hubs as end uses? It's very unclear, but the DOE's hydrogen roadmap, which kind of sets the vision for the department for how they will go about their hydrogen deployment, is pretty damn good. Uh, it's all mm. focused on deploying hydrogen in hard-to-electrify applications where it's actually needed and doesn't have better alternatives. So if they were to make good on that roadmap, and I really hope they do, they will select the hubs that actually have the high-value end-uses and not the low-value end uses like blending <laughs> and pipes. Yes, let's just say when we talk about low-value, like the idea of blending hydrogen into natural gas pipelines to marginally reduce the climate impact of natural gas just seems to me like the lowest possible use of, you know, what is effectively like champagne be like, <laughs> be like dumping champagne in your water supply or something i don't know what the right analogy is like you want to you know you want to save champagne it's expensive and you want to save it for the best highest uses of it and this is like this is a big fight with the natural gas industry of course because they want their natural gas pipelines to stay up and running as long as possible they want all that infrastructure they want themselves to survive and so the idea that like they could mix in a little hydrogen and go on they love it. That's a but as you say, that's a whole separate fight, a whole separate a whole separate pod about hydrogen in uses. Absolutely. And this has a real implication on the production because if we recklessly open the floodgates of supply 
in this decade with very loose rules, then where is this hydrogen all going to go, right? right. The, the end uses that are the most primed to go, unfortunately, today are the, you know, barring, replacing existing hydrogen with cleaner, which is good. It's all these other bad end uses, including blending, because steel and the other good end uses aren't quite commercially viable just yet. So all this to say, the hubs are going to be a big end use driver. Public procurement tools are really interesting. So the federal government is one of the largest buyers, for instance, of steel for public infrastructure projects. There's a lot of money in the IRA now for the federal government to clean up some of their cement and steel and so on that mm-hmm. they purchase. If there is a procurement for green steel that is hydrogen derived, then that's really interesting, right? You're starting to create a very strong, stable demand signal. And we're seeing some states like Colorado, Illinois, Pennsylvania, starting to contemplate state-specific tax credits focused on using hydrogen in specific end uses. Mm. I'm not going to get behind those proposals. They're not great. (laughs) But I I think it's the right kind of thinking, right? Let's start trying to be more targeted uh, with where we're driving this resource in the economy. Right. So you're saying if we're going to sort of jam an enormous amount of supply into the system really quickly, we should also implement some demand-side policies to guide the hydrogen thusly produced to its highest and best uses. Absolutely. We have to be very cautious about where we're using it and divert it to the right places for sure. Okay. Goodness, that's a lot. (laughs) uh, It just goes to show in the energy world, you're like, clean hydrogen, let's do that. And then so many devils in the details. I'm hoping this was less wonky than Eric Jimon's, <laughs> whom, I, whom I have the utmost respect to, but even my mind was turned into a pretzel <laughs> listening to that episode. <laughs> yeah, I think we hit a nice good middle spot. This is like the, uh, this is like the 301 class, uh, in more than the 101, but less than the grad seminar. That's always, that's my Correct. aspiration. That's where students either drop or... or yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the ones who can get past this pod, they're... Definitely uh, headed for expert expertise. Uh, Rachel Fockery of NRDC, thank you so much for coming on and talking through this all so plainly and simply and clearly. Uh, I super appreciate it. Thanks so much, Dave. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.